So one of my earliest memories, I was in third or fourth grade, eight or nine years old. Uh, my cousins, they lived next to us in the neighborhood that we were in. And there was one time we were all out playing. We had our bikes. And we were out playing in the roads and uh, having a good time. And I heard the ice cream truck. And I dropped everything that I was doing, and I ran for that ice cream truck. I had to get home. I had to get some money. And I got there. You know, all my friends were still playing. And my folks were like, George, you know what? You love food too much. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they rebuked and reprimanded me and sent me back out with any money for the ice cream truck. Uh, it didn't really help, so, you know, since then, my love for food and drink has, I would say, even grown, um, but I'll explain why as we go through this. So last week, we looked at the idol of power and security. We're working through the book of Exodus, and we saw that Israel began grumbling about their conditions when they saw Pharaoh's armies coming up to them, and their backs are against the Red Sea. And uh, so we saw that, that, you know, they grumbled against God and said, you should have left us back in Egypt. And so we saw that, that both Israel and Pharaoh, in their, in their worship of power and security, actually got to the point where the actions that they, that they engaged in, because of their fear, because of losing power and security, actually uh, sped up the process and brought them to a place where they had no power. At least that happened to Pharaoh, and we're going to see it unfold here uh, for Israel. So that was Israel's first testing of God, the scriptures call it. They're grumbling against God um, when their backs were against the Red Sea. So what you see in the book of, of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, so we're going to carry out through these books and finish up Deuteronomy in the fall. What you see is that there are five of these tests or five of these grumblings against God prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. After Mount Sinai, there are another five. And so at, after the tenth, so the tenth testing of God, so God had been promising them all of these great promises. I'm going to give you the promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. You, you will have no fear from your enemies. Your kids are going to do great. Uh, the animals, wild animals, aren't going to kill you. All these promises. They get to the land, they send in spies. And the spies came back. Ten of the spies out of the twelve, Joshua and Caleb went as spies, but they didn't respond this way. But ten of the spies said this, the people are too tall and powerful, their cities are too fortified. there's no way we can take this land. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? And so God says this after that tenth time. I will not let you go into the land, to that generation. He forbade them from going into the land. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the remaining four tests that are in Exodus prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. And obviously when we get to Numbers, we're going to look at the last five. So the first test was this concern for power and security. These next four tests all have to do with food and drink. So today we're looking at the, the idol or the, the false god, the functional god, things that we love that, that take us away from God. 
We talked a little bit more about that last week. We're going to look at these four grumblings, these four, these four tests that reflected their orientation to the Lord. So the first test is, is just three days after they left the Red Sea. God had just delivered them. He, he destroyed the most massive and powerful army in the world. Three days later, they, they are running out of water, and they grumble against God. They grumble against Moses. Why did you take us out of Egypt to die of thirst? And the text says this, God made for them a law and a statute. And it says that God now tested them. And this is a a critical change in God's orientation towards the people. God is now placing a condition upon their ability to experience what he has promised. God has made tons of promises to to this nation, hasn't asked one thing of them for them to experience these promises. But now he has. If you obey me, if you listen to my voice, I will not inflict you with all of the punishments that I inflicted Egypt with. That's the first grumbling, the first test against God. The second one is a, so there's actually three scenarios and two tests, two grumblings are in one scenario and that's this second scenario. So about a month and a half after they left Egypt, they start running out of food and they again, again grumble against God and complain about how he is taking care of them. And they say, you know, back in Egypt, we had these meat pots and bread to the full. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die of hunger? Now, God doesn't wait for Moses to say anything to him. God immediately responds to the grumbling. And again, the text says that God is now going to test Israel. And he says this, you know, I'm going to provide you meat and I'm going to provide you bread. This evening, I'm going to bring quail. In the morning, you're going to have bread. Here's what I want you to do with that. I want you to go out and collect that whatever you need per person. I don't want you to store it till the next day. I want you to take what you need for the day. On the sixth day, collect twice as much. Because on the seventh day, I don't want you to have to go out. I want you to be able to rest and enjoy what I bless you with and give, and give thanks to me as Lord for who, ha, who has provided all these things. So don't store any food. Don't go out and collect on the seventh day. So they go out this next morning and it's this, it's this, this substance that tastes like wafers and honey. And so... They start collecting, and as you might expect, there are some people that store some for the next day. Why? They're afraid they're not going to have enough, and it spoils. It gets rotten, and worms grow in it. They come to the sixth day. They collect twice the amount. Seventh day comes, as we might expect. There are some folks that go out and look for manna on the seventh day. And God says, how long will you people continue to disobey my laws? So they grumbled and complained and made their usual diatribe of, why didn't you leave us back in Egypt? And then they violated those two two instructions. And the third scenario, again, Israel tests God. 
And once again, it's about water. And, and they get so desperate that they get to a place and they're about ready to stone Moses. And Moses goes to God and says, God, what am I supposed to do now? Why did you give me these people to, to manage and to work with? And they're about ready to stone him. So God instructs Moses, Moses, go over and strike the rock. And I want you to take the elders with you because I want your authority to be established. I am working through you to lead this nation. And so Moses goes over and strikes the rock and water pours out. And the entire, entire nation is then supplied with water. So those are, the, those are the three scenarios and the four tests. The four tests against God, four grumblings against God. So now there's five against them. There's five against them. Now there are two levels of instruction here in this passage for, that we see for the nation of Israel, which obviously long time since then, but two levels of instruction for us. The highest level, which is, in, this is Moses' intention. If you, look at the, if you look at the text of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, there are predominantly two kinds of, of literature in those three books. There's narrative, and there's legal literature, laws. The abundance is law. The part that is, is narrative consists primarily of these grumblings of these testings against God by the nation of Israel. Which communicates to me that Moses is trying to show in his writing and collection and, and putting together of this text that, that these were key moments that really were central to how Israel turned out in the end. And again, at that 10th testing, when the spies go into the land and they come back and they say, the people are too big, the cities are too fortified, we can't go in, they decide as a nation to not go in. And then God says this, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all of the signs that I have done among them? So God had given them the, the bulk of the Mosaic law to this point. So the Mosaic law are all the, the codes and rituals and instructions that God gave to Moses. And so we call the five books of Moses the law, but within the law are all these codes. And so the codes had been given. The law, the five books, is not the same as the codes. So here you have a, a nation, most of the codes have been given to them. But they are judged not for breaking those codes. They are judged for their lack of love, because there's despising or hating, and the opposite of which is love. And they are judged for their lack of faith, for their unbelief. Obedience doesn't come without love and faith. We know this is obviously a very strong New Testament principle. Paul says in the book of Romans, he's explaining his mission, I'm here to preach to the Gentiles so that they would have an obedience from faith or a faith that leads to obedience. So that's the first lesson. The laws are secondary. They're important. The laws show us where we are not loving and believing in God. So that's the first level, to love and believe in God, to love and believe in God. And what's not to love? 
He has delivered them from slavery. He has delivered them from oppression and murder. He has, he has crushed the world's largest army to protect them. He has provided for them what is not to love in God. Then there's a second level of things. Just like we see in the, in the New Testament, there are things to put off and there are things to put on. Israel needs to unlearn some things, and God is being patient with them. He, recognize, he recognizes that, that they have been an enslaved people for hundreds of years in Egypt. You don't, you don't take an enslaved people, free them, and free them from the mindsets that enslaved people have. An enslaved, victimized people will continue to act like enslaved, victimized people. And God is patient with them in, in wanting to educate them about what it means to be a free people in service to God. And so he's patient. He gives them these 10 times so that they can unlearn the lifestyle and worldview of Egyptians and so that they can learn what it means to know and follow and believe in the Lord God. So the first thing that he wants them to unlearn is one, these things are not required for your basic needs. There are, there are things that you don't need to go to to have your basic needs met. First of all, you don't have to sell yourself for your basic needs to be met. For the people of the kingdom, enslaving yourself to be fed and to have water is a no-go. Remember, Egypt sold themselves for food and bread and water sold them, the entire citizenship sold themselves to Pharaoh. That's the first thing to unlearn. You don't have to sell yourself to be taken care of. Second thing, there's no, competition and hoarding is not necessary. Scarcity is not the reality for the people of God. Abundances. Abundances. So quit hoarding. Quit thinking that you're in competition with others. God will provide. Third thing, constant striving is not the way of God's people. In Egypt, they worked hard every day, and at the end of the day, they were beaten for it because they couldn't meet their brick quotas. For the people of God, they work six days. There's fruit from their labor. Then they can rest. They enjoy fruit from their labor. They have time and energy and emotional strength to, to enjoy what they have worked for and to then give thanks to God for providing it so abundantly so that they can take a day off and feel good about it. And in fact, God commands them to. And it's interesting that God has to command them to. And we'll see throughout Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, God will actually tell them to set aside portions of their harvest and of their of their wine and everything that they produce and he and he doesn't say give it to the priest they have to give some to the priest but he says i want you to set some aside for a massive feast that's going to last a week in fact they do it three times i you have to take some time off and celebrate how good i've been to you is what god's telling them they had three vacation weeks a year automatically, the entire nation, whether you were rich or whether you were poor, three vacation weeks a year. The, the other thing they need to unlearn is that life is not found in eating and drinking. 
Paul says something similar in Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but love and peace in the spirit of Jesus Christ. Unlearning these things is going to open them up to what God has for them. Then there are some things to learn, and they're just kind of the opposite of these things. But the first thing that they need to learn is that their need for God is real. There's a reason why God lets them kind of get to the point of, hmm, we're running out of water and food. Where is it going to come from? We don't have any farms here. We're traveling through the wilderness. In Egypt, they always had enough under the conditions of slavery and oppression and murder. And so outside of the provision of Egypt that had a lot of conditions on it that were evil for them, they had enough but were enslaved. So God delivers them, but who's now going to provide the basics? They've seen God destroy a massive army, but is he going to provide food and water? So they need to learn that God is their source, that God is their source, not Egypt under slavery, but God who gives freely and with generosity and abundance, which is the second thing. God provides generously for all, depending on needs. Says, you know, some collected a little and it met their needs. Some collected a lot and it met their needs. Everyone ate as much as they could. The text says that. Everyone ate as much as they could. God provides generously for all, depending on our needs. Some of us have needs that are much greater than others. Some of us have needs that are much smaller than others. God gives according to what we need to carry out his purposes. He's called us. We're going to get to this a little bit later. Steve, your stuff out of Acts just is going to blend quite well with, with what we're doing here today. Thank you. We are all on a mission called by God in a place and in a time of his choosing for a specific purpose. And we've been gifted and we've been supplied for that. God provides, another thing, God provides enough so that they can rest and enjoy and give thanks. They can stop working, believing and knowing that, you know what, tomorrow I'm going to have enough. We're going to have enough. Let's take the time that God has given us to enjoy it and then to give thanks and praise to him for the fact that we can. And then ultimately, life is found in God, not food and drink. Food and drink were abundant in Egypt, but not life and freedom. Not life and freedom. You know, and, and God says in that first, and after that second grumbling, when he gave them a law and a statute, if you fail to unlearn the way of, of the Egyptians, I'm going to punish you like I did the Egyptians. And it, sound, it may sound cruel, and it may sound like God's going back on his promises, but why would God show partiality? God is not one to show partiality. If they're going to continue to live and act and think like the Egyptians, they're going to have to come under the consequence of the Egyptians because the Egyptians were worshiping false gods who could not deliver. And here they had the one true God who was delivering, and if they wanted to continue to hold on to those false gods, then they're going to fall under the judgment of those false gods. Application for us. I think there are a lot of, I mean, we can look at these texts and, and, and absolutely there's a lot of distance and there's a lot of distance in time. There's a lot of distance in culture. 
But there's a lot of similarities. I think the first one is one. God has chosen and called us as a people, just like God chose and called Israel as a people. God had a specific purpose for them. Through Israel, God was going to show his power, his glory, his wisdom to all the other nations of the earth so that the other nations would see there is something distinct and unique about this nation Israel. And you really begin to see that under the, the King David and King Solomon, and then everything just kind of goes to pot. But God has chosen us, Jesus says quite specifically in John chapter 17, I have chosen you, disciples, you have not chosen me. And I have, I have chosen you that you may bear fruit, fruit that lasts. We know from Ephesians 3 that God is growing the church to live in such a way so that we demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, these false gods, same false gods that were influencing Egypt, and to show the wisdom and the beauty and the glory of God to all creation. That is our calling. We are called to live lives of justice and righteousness, just like God called Abraham and his people to lives of righteousness and justice. In the book of Philippians, it says this, I want you to stand firm as one man with one mind for the progress of the gospel. That's our calling. What Steve described this morning is our calling. But just like Israel, it is very easy for us to grumble and to complain. The book of Philippians again, he says, chapter 2, do not grumble or complain about anything so that you can be a light to a dark world. I think, I've got to think that Paul had these scenarios in mind. It is the grumbling and complaining of Israel that brings them to a point of God forbidding them from the land and ultimately will get them to a point where they are completely exiled as a nation into foreign lands. The grumbling and complaining. And ultimately, what we, like we saw, it, it, it comes from a place of disbelief and disdaining God. Israel was suffering. As we see in the book of Philippians, that they were suffering as well. Paul says, I see that you're suffering in the way that I am suffering. And he was in jail. He says, I want you to hold fast to the word of life so that you may shine as lights in the world. Our, our grumbling and complaining about our circumstances undermines our ability to show the light of the gospel in this world. Steve, your response to Meredith's question was, that's what we've been saying here. Witness going forward, in fact, I would say this has always been the biblical model of witness. Our lives are lights. They are attractions. I mean, Titus chapter 2. Live this way and it makes the teachings of our Lord and Savior attractive and our enemies will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Our, our lives as lights in this world, individuals living amongst everyone, our neighborhood, our schools, our workplaces, and they're supposed to be of such bright light that people are going to come and ask us. Colossians chapter 4, people are going to come and ask you questions, be ready. 1 Peter chapter 2, be ready to explain the hope that is within you because people are going to come and ask, why do you have hope? If we are grumbling and complaining, it means that we're thinking like the rest of the world. We usually grumble and complain about the same thing Israel was grumbling and complaining about, the comforts of life, 
food and drink and these kinds of things. If we think like the rest of the world, we're going to think that scarcity is the defining reality. We're going to see each other in competition with ourselves. We're going to work all the time. I mean, you can see. Life is found in eating and drinking and filling yourself with pleasure and entertainment. Enslavement to these kinds of conditions is normal. And if we're grumbling and complaining about our station in life, what we're saying is that our life is conditioned by the way of the world. Our life is not conditioned by the calling that God has given to me in my life and the resources that he's given to me to fulfill that calling. If we're grumbling and complaining, we're not seeing God's calling upon our life, God's resourcing of us. So when we hold fast, he says, don't grumble and complain, but hold fast to the word of life. The, the, the word of life is, is this truth. Christ has been given to us, the creator and sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. Everything keeps going because of Jesus Christ. Everything. Everything. Even, even people and nations and organizations, those things are all kept going by Jesus Christ. We are all kept going by Jesus Christ. We are the children of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. And Christ said, do not worry about what you're going to eat and drink. Do not worry about what you're going to wear. God knows you need these things. Seek first the kingdom, and then all things will be added to you. So when we grumble and complain, what we're saying is, God isn't doing a good job of supplying me. And it means that our mind is not set on the kingdom, but on the things of this earth. Some will have more, some will have less. It, it's up to us to figure out what God has called us to, how God has resources, and then to use those things as stewards. Our problem is that we envy, we covet, to be like our contemporaries. If God was providing enough for Israel, how much more has God provided for us in Jesus Christ? He has given us the creator and sustainer. He's put that spirit in us for an abundant life. Jesus said himself, come to me. I will quench your thirst. I've come that you may have life and have life abundantly into the full. But like Israel, we must first believe. We must first love I think that in a world that grumbles and complains, even one like ours that has an abundance of riches, there has to be a recognition that there is something lacking, that there is something lacking in this world. The text says that God wants to bless us according to the riches of glory in Christ. Can you even measure the, the riches in glory in Christ He's going, he's going to come back and all the world will immediately take notice and all the world will bow down and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is indeed Lord. There, there, it is beyond our ability to measure or even imagine. So, so in faith, okay, so if we believe that God can provide and does provide and wants us to rest and wants us to enjoy these things, what do we need to do? What, how do we, if, if, we can, if we believe, then what do we follow up in obedience? Well, simply, as we conclude here, we work. 
We work to provide for ourselves and for others. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 says. Works, stop, stop stealing and start working so that you can provide for yourself and for others. Who are the others? First and foremost, our church family, but then also the pressing needs of the world. So we take care of our needs, we take care of the needs of the church family, we take care of the needs in the world around us as God gives opportunity and provides. We provide for gospel ministry. We've got to be connected to this mission. We've got to be connected to this mission of preaching the gospel, of establishing people, of building churches, of sending out. You guys, we have needs and opportunities to start some new house churches this year. And they're just kind of growing and emerging. And so we're going to be, we're going to be calling on all of us. It's going to take all of us to, to support these efforts. You may be a new house church. We need to leave the safety and relationships of the one you're in and, and help start another. Lawrence and I are ready to start spending some more evenings in support of these additional house churches. So we have to provide for this. And in the, in, the, in, the, in the city of, in the church in Philippi, they were experiencing suffering and it was leading to anxiety. And this anxiety, Paul says, well, you need to pray. Pray, and we talked about that last week. Set your minds on truth. Guard your heart and mind. God will guard your heart and your minds in your anxiety. But in their anxiety, what happened? They stopped sending support to Paul. They stopped sending support to Paul. And some of the people, see, there was disunity. That's why he's saying stand firm as one man with one mind for the progress of the gospel. There was disunity. And there were some that wanted to stop supporting Paul. There were some that wanted to continue. So those who wanted to continue, they pulled some money together. They sent a guy off. And, and Paul says, listen, I have received your gift. Thank you very much. And he says this. My God will supply all of your needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He could say that because they were giving for the kingdom. You can't hold on to that promise if you're not obeying that. We work to provide for ourselves, to meet the needs of the others, and to support the mission. So Twin Cities Church, we are on mission in God's kingdom. We've, we've got to stop running after the short-lived treats of the ice cream truck. You know, my parents, they, they didn't talk to me about, you know, George, you need to start loving the Lord. <laughs> you need to start loving. And what's happened is as I have seen God be a provider, what's, what, what that's done in terms of my orientation towards food and drink, my appreciation of God, of God in his provision has grown and it has brought more enjoyment in food and drink and in sharing that with others. It is a, it's an act of worship to enjoy the things that God gives us. But we've got to first set our minds on the kingdom, to believe in God, to love God, and then follow him in obedience, trusting that he's always going to provide everything that we need richly. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your beautiful word. Father, that just the, the, the beauty of the narrative and how it unfolds, showing that even amidst all these laws, what you really are wanting, God, is for us to love you. And you have given us great reason for us to love you. So God, we ask, help us to love you more. Help us to believe in you more, that we would grow in our obedience to you even more. 
In your son's precious name we pray, amen.